Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Well, it is good to think that I'm seeing you all tonight. Uh, Even though I can't physically see you, I'm going to believe that you're there. How's that? Pray that you are well during this time of uh, being sheltered in place and that your family is healthy. Uh, We have a lot to be thankful for in the midst of these very difficult times. And we certainly have a lot to pray about in the midst of these very difficult times. I want to give you a little bit of an update as far as the church is concerned. We're holding the line as far as what the government would like us to do, and so we're going to continue to not meet physically until uh, we are told that it is okay with our uh, government. And so for now, we're going to continue to meet here online, and we uh, encourage you to do that. As you might imagine, uh, that affects all kinds of things here at the church physically, and so Uh, We do want to continue to ask that you would uh, prayerfully consider uh, your giving and continue to do that during this time. And in fact, as you uh, might well imagine, just like the rest of the world, uh, the church goes through the same business decisions uh, that the world has to go through in that regard. And so uh, I would actually ask for you to pray for those that uh, we are going to uh, unfortunately, have to cut down our staff here at the church during this time, and so that will be happening tomorrow. And so, uh, as a church, please do pray for those that will be getting that notification. If you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 13, uh, while you're turning there, I want to remind you that we're coming up on Easter week, and in fact, this Sunday is Palm Sunday, and so we're going to do our series of messages that we had planned for Easter Uh, They will be virtual and online, but I want to strongly encourage you to make sure and invite somebody to come on over for an Easter service at your house. Uh, Keep it under 10 and make sure you can sit five or six feet apart, but uh, we are going to be celebrating Easter in a virtual way, and so this Sunday is Palm Sunday, and so we'll begin the journey with Jesus uh, coming into Jerusalem uh, this coming Sunday. And I also would remind you Uh, that we are going to be spending Good Friday doing this virtually as well and to let you know that we are going to be celebrating communion on Good Friday. And so you're going to need to go and uh, find some bread and find some juice. Uh, You could substitute Gatorade or something like that if you need to in a pinch. Uh, But we are going to be celebrating communion together as well. And so let you know that in advance. So next Friday, a week from tomorrow, uh, at both noon and 7 If you'd have the elements of communion available at your house, we're going to do that together uh, via the wonder of the internet. So would you join me? We'll pick up uh, the whole chapter, chapter 13 tonight, here as we continue our study uh, through the book of Isaiah, chapter and verse, as we always do here at Calvary Chapel South Bay. So let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, we've come. Uh, We remember the song of salvation the Jewish people sang in chapter 12. And now as we come to this series, these uh, woes and burdens that are pronounced upon the kingdoms, the nations of the earth, as they 
and disobedience come against you. Lord, we can certainly see the similarities in our time and pray that no one would be discouraged but encouraged and that we who know you also know that one day uh, you're gonna call the church home. God, it couldn't be too soon in the day and time that we live. And so we ask that you would speak to us tonight through your word, teach us by your spirit, even though we're apart physically, Lord, your spirit binds us together uh, wherever we are. And so speak to your church, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, church, I'm just old enough to have remembered, and probably some of you watching are as well, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and really the heart of that was in 1962. And I remember uh, my parents quite vividly freaking out. And in fact, my grandfather, a member of a of a society that believed that the communists were going to overrun the United States of America at any moment, I was a member of the John Birch Society, and and I remember my dad even contemplating building a bomb shelter uh, in our backyard in our house, but. Slightly before that, on November 18th of 1956, the premier of the Soviet Union, Nikita Khrushchev, said something very interesting to the world, but he was specifically speaking of the United States of America. And he said this, he said, whether you like it or not, history is on our side and we will bury you. Mr. Khrushchev is dead. Communism is dead. His boastful prophetic word never came true. Uh, Those missiles that he was responsible for placing in Cuba uh, were never used. And our president, John F. Kennedy at the time, uh, stood that test and we survived that. And as we tonight are gathered together uh, virtually in the midst of this crisis with this virus, You might be asking yourself, is there a pattern to history? Is there someone in control of it? Is God really in control of our circumstance and our situation? And I'm here to tell you tonight, God is very much still in control. No more than a rogue nation like the Soviet Socialist Republic at the time uh, is going to win ultimately over God's sovereignty. Neither is a virus going to win over God's sovereign plan. And we see that throughout Scripture. And so we have to ask ourselves, is there really a sovereign God in charge of all these events? People have questioned, is God good if he allows things like the coronavirus? Is God good if there are wars or rumors of wars? And so we're asking the same question that people have asked for millennia. Is God good and is he actually in charge? These next 11 chapters here in the book of Isaiah give us a history of humankind. British historian Edward Gibbon called history little more than a register of the crimes, the follies, and the misfortunes of mankind. But his Christian counterpart, a man that uh, I've studied his life, A.T. Pearson said this. He said that history is actually his story. And so we might tonight ask ourselves, which one's right? Is it Gibbon or Pearson? Which one has the correct view? 
And I believe that the prophet Isaiah, and certainly I would agree with the fact that A.T. Pearson is correct. There is a sovereign God that's in control of all things. And so as we unveil these next 11 chapters, and as we look at God's plan for these nations, we, we cry out with the very same things that we saw as we studied through the book of Daniel, that the most high God rules the kingdom of men, and it is he who gives and does whatever he chooses. It is as the Apostle Paul made a declaration uh, there on the Oropagus as he's speaking to these that were questioning the various gods, to those Greek philosophers in Athens. And Paul said in Acts 17, that God has determined and set times for the nations and exact places where they should live. And so as Isaiah pronounces these burdens on these various nations, Isaiah was carrying a heavy weight for the people. Uh, he looked at the world through the lens of Scripture in that sense. And though he himself was being used of the Holy Spirit to author it, he could look back on what the prophets before him had said, what Jeremiah was writing at that time, and what Moses had said about the children of Israel. And it's no wonder that he felt burdened because here his nation is trapped in Jerusalem. You may feel trapped tonight in your home. I know Connie and I have had many conversations in the last couple of weeks about kind of feeling like we're we're trapped in this endless existence of getting up in the morning and uh, I run off to try and accomplish a few things appropriately given the guidelines that we have and we come back together and we see each other for an hour or two and then do it all over again the following morning. And it seems as though life has been reduced to these uh, events that we would look at and say, well, it's not a lot of joy uh, in, in the life that we're living the truth is that is most of the world's condition almost every day. We have been so blessed as a nation to live in such a time of abundance that I think sometimes we forget exactly how good we have it. How wonderful it is when our shelves are empty, they're still more full than the rest of the world. When, when we don't have the things that we really think we ought to have and want to have, we still have more than people who live in other places and other nations. We, we look at the things going on right now and, you know, New York is in crisis and New Jersey is in crisis and here in California, we're kind of moving a, a little bit. That direction doesn't seem quite so severe and yet we have a, a crazy man driving a train off of the end of the track trying to point towards there being a, a gigantic plot to, take over the United States by some nefarious underworld group of people that are governing things behind the scenes. And so the mercy ship that's docked in Pedro right now somehow represents this, this group of people that is now in control of everything. For those of us that have lived through things like this before, we think back on George Orwell's book 1984, and we, we even wonder tonight, is in fact Big Brother watching us? But the truth is, these things are not really all that new. 
The truth is, this is not the first crisis that mankind's faced. The truth is, this is not only not the first crisis, it's certainly not the greatest crisis that mankind has faced. And so Isaiah now begins to elaborate, verse 1 here in Isaiah uh, chapter 13, and it says, the burden against Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. Where, where does all this fit in the history of the world? Where does it fit in your life tonight? Father, we pray that you would take care of every need, of every person that's listening and watching. Lord, calm, calm our hearts tonight and help us to receive with gladness your engrafted word. Lord, as we study, God, would you bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you that are worried, maybe this chapter will help you realize that God is still in control. Isaiah speaks now of a burden of Babylon, and he begins this prophetic look, if you will, ahead. And if you remember, I spoke to you that very often the prophets of old had, in essence, a sense that there would be a dual fulfillment, and sometimes they knew it apparently from their writings, sometimes they did not. But God was speaking through the prophets and as he spoke through them, uh, he would give them something that they could cling to in the moment and something to look forward to in the distant future. In other words, a present or a near fulfillment or a predictive or far fulfillment of that prophecy. And we can see that back in chapter seven. And that present fulfillment would be the child that would be born to Isaiah and his wife, who happened to also be a virgin. Uh, and before that child was old enough to really know much, the kings of Samaria and Syria would be forever destroyed. And so there was a near fulfillment, but it was looking forward to something greater. There was something that God was using Isaiah to speak into the nation, and that was Messiah was coming. There was a permanent solution uh, to what ailed them. And of course, it would look forward much further in human history, some 700 plus years to the time of Christ. Uh, and the Lord would come on the scene. And just as Matthew's gospel reminds us that that uh, virgin was Mary and Mary would give birth to that child, that child would be Jesus. And so in our passage, we then are actually left with a question if Babylon was in existence and Babylon was a problem for the Jewish people, if Babylon of that day, Isaiah was actually speaking about a captivity of a legitimate empire called Babylon, was he speaking about Babylon or is he talking about something else? In other words, which Babylon is it? If there could be a child born to a virgin in Isaiah's time and a child that'd be born to a virgin much later that would be Messiah. Is the prophet Isaiah actually talking about Babylon, which at the time was rising, or is he talking about Babylon that perhaps is a future Babylon yet even tonight? And I believe that the first uh, 20 plus verses of this chapter is actually looking forward ahead to a Babylon that tonight we might actually be seeing 
start to rise. Because your Bible in Revelation chapter 17 and 18 describe a Babylon that is still yet future, a religious Babylon and an ecclesiastical Babylon. In other words, a Babylon that one day will be the religious head of the world and a Babylon that will be the commercial head of the world. And it's interesting to me when we think of this and as we read chapter 17 and 18, 17 dealing with uh, religious Babylon of the book of Revelation, 18 with commercial Babylon or the one world monetary system whereby the world will be governed under the Antichrist, I, I see these two entities actually working together in the very last days. And it is extremely interesting to me when I look at the world that we live in, in light of how people are responding to this coronavirus problem that we have. And though I myself personally think it is very unnecessary for us to try and cast blame as to where it started, I think it's immaterial. I don't think it matters one iota, whether it started in China or whether it started in Pakistan or whether it came from some other country, that doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is this has become a global pandemic. And consequently, we are looking for a global solution to this global problem. We have people all over the world working together to some degree to solve this problem. There's going to come a time in the world's history when this will be magnified even greater than we see it today. In Revelation chapter 16, we see a woman who rides a beast and I believe ultimately that there will be a European system of government that will rise up in the last days that will, in essence, be the governing force of the world. I think the Bible says that. And while you could say, well, is it the Catholic Church? or I don't personally believe it's necessary to say that, but I think you can look at the world and see that a large percentage of the European nations, at least, are still predominantly Catholic. But there is going to be a world system of commerce and a world system of religion that's going to bring together all of the world's religions. And that would be Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam. It's going to be cults, Kabbalism and Mormonism, New Age. All of those religions will be joined together. And it's interesting to me that all of those religions have no problem peacefully coexisting. It is biblical Christianity that's a problem in that group. It is specifically Protestant Christianity. It is those of us who actually believe that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father but by him. You, you see, we actually believe that there is only one name under heaven whereby men must be saved that there isn't any other way that people can come into a right relationship with God. And so the world in that sense is kind of looking at Christendom saying, well, I think Christians are actually the problem. And now you bring in these global things that we have going on, like the pandemic that we currently face. You, you bring together what we call the G20, which for those of you that don't know what the G20 is, the G20 is the world's most, the, the world's, 20 most powerful economies. And they get together uh, generally annually. Uh, in 2019, they got together uh, in Osaka, Japan, and they began to discuss what do we do? And interestingly enough, 
one of the, the items of discussion during the G20 meetings that were recently held was what do we do about the reserve currency of the world? Because currently the U.S. dollar is that reserve currency. When people compare their, their currency, they compare it to the U.S. dollar. But the U.S. dollar is, is still predominantly based on a Judeo-Christian nation that is a democracy. And that democracy actually happens to be a republic. And so we, we have a unique form of government that allows us to be and do all the things that we are. And to a very large degree, it is based on Christian principles. Well, what happens if that nation becomes less impactful in our world? Could it be that this Babylon that's mentioned here that Isaiah says woe to could be that final Babylon? Revelation 17 says this, verses one and two. And then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and talked with me saying, come and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication. The inhabitants of the earth were made drunk by the wine of her fornication. And I think it's really looking forward to a false church, a church that unfortunately does what many would like to do today, and that's say all roads lead to heaven. And whether we want to say it or not, as Christians, we believe that all roads do not, believe, do not lead to heaven. There is only one name. There is only one way. The gospel in, it, in the sense that it is absolutely open to anyone who believe also is exclusive in that you have to believe to be saved. So imagine that you put together a, a group that would say, well, look, let's all get together and see if we can't deal with this Christian problem. And you put together the nations that uh, would, would gladly say, Look, we're, we're really not too happy about what Christians believe. I myself have been banned from going into India for that very reason. I'm not allowed to go. I'm on a no-fly list. Why? <clears throat> because I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no such thing as universal salvation. Anyone who comes to Christ comes by grace through faith. One must come by grace through faith and believe. And so imagine the world gathers together and says, look, we think all roads lead to heaven. Let's just bring all the Catholics and some Christians and every cult and all Hindus and those who practice Islam, that Babylon. The Bible calls that Babylon the great harlot that sits on many waters. Revelation 17, verses three through five. And so he carried me away in the spirit to the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which is full of the names of blasphemy having seven heads and 10 horns. We, we saw this same beast rise up in the book of Daniel. 
And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. In other words, she's rich. And having in her hand a golden cup full of the abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abomination of the earth. So the Bible in the book of Revelation says that there's going to be a last day's Babylon. It's going to have tremendous commercial control and tremendous religious control over the entire world. So which Babylon is it? Is it Europa that rides the beast here in Revelation 17? I I believe that Daniel is seeing ahead into the future. I think that this world system will finally rise up. And the one that we know as the Antichrist is, is going to be that beast upon which the world's power will ride. And it's also interesting to me, and while I think it's, again, important that we don't carry this too far, uh, but there are some things that we can look at in recent history and kind of see how the world is playing right into this particular picture. Carrying us into the very last days. And in fact, if you uh, are a student of such things, as the European Union developed its currency the euro, uh, one of the two euro coins, the Greek two euro coin actually has Europa on it and it has a woman riding a beast. Also has the European Union stamp for a while. Uh, also had exactly the same thing representing the European par- Parliament. And oddly enough, Europa was the goddess of, of Babylon. She was Babylonian in origin. And also, oddly enough, blonde hair, blue eyes, very much the Aryan or the white supremacist racist model. And so you can kind of see there's there's these crazy connections that link to a final world empire uh, to where people are going to say, you know, I think Christianity is actually the problem. And so I believe that the prophet Isaiah is seeing into the very last days. And so we get some of the details here uh, in much of the remainder of the chapter. Verse two, he goes on to say, lift up the banner on a high mountain and raise your voice to them. Wave your hand that they may enter the gates of the nobles. For I've commanded my sanctified ones, that would be uh, the saints, I've also called my mighty ones for my anger, those who rejoice in my exaltation, the noise of the multitude in the mountains like that of many people, a tumultuous noise of kingdoms, of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts musters an army for battle. And it appears to me very clearly that Isaiah is seeing towards the very last days to the final three and a half years of the period of time that we call Daniel's 70th week, uh, the time that the Gentiles' uh, mission here on earth has ended, the time of Jacob's trouble that Jeremiah writes about in chapter 30, and the time that Jesus himself was referring to in Matthew 24, and there in verses 4 through 8, Matthew 24, 
Jesus speaking said, and Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ and will deceive many and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled. In other words, church, see that these things don't bother you. All these things must come to pass, yet the end is not yet. In other words, the beginning of these things is just that, the beginning of these things. In other words, things like what we're seeing in our world today could very well be the beginning of these things. What things? The last day's things. The things that bring about that final world kingdom. The rise of Babylon. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Oddly enough, that's exactly what the prophet Isaiah sees. So Jesus speaks these words some 700 years later. There will be famines and pestilences or, or diseases is another word that can be inserted there. Earthquakes in various places. And these are the beginnings of sorrows. It's interesting as you study uh, what's going on in the world seismically. The increase in earthquakes around the world uh, is, is approaching tenfold in the last 15 years. Just the sheer number, severity, the number of places that they are. And all these things are just, Jesus said, the beginning of sorrows. And so he said these would be the sign uh, that we're getting close to the end. This is also the very thing that Psalm 2 writes about. And the psalmist is writing there from the perspective of, look, this, these are types of things that you need to look for as the day draws near. Why do the nations rage, verse 1 says, Psalm 2. And the people plot a vain thing, and the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords away from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision, and he will speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. The whole of Psalm 2 basically speaks forward into this time as well. It's saying, look, there's going to come a point in time when God's going to say enough. I'm done playing around with sin. I'm done allowing evil to exist. I'm done allowing the devil doing his work in this world. And you're probably saying to yourself, well, let's, let's get out of here. Amen. It, it might be today. It could be tonight. We, we may hear that trumpet sound. The dead in Christ may rise and we who are alive and remain might well meet him together in the air tonight. And that's why these passages are so important to us as we look at them. It's not to scare anyone. It's to make everyone aware. It's not to scare, it's to be aware. It is for us to look at these passages saying, how close are we? The world is coming unhinged, that the world is coming unglued, that the world is looking towards global answers to these pandemics and problems. And we might want to ask ourselves, is the Lord trying to say, hey, you're pretty close to the end? 
And surely I'll get an email or two. You're, you're predicting the end of the No, I'm not predicting the end of the world. I am telling you that there is nothing left on the prophetic timeline that has to happen before the Lord could come for his church. And so as we see things like we're seeing, we have to ask ourselves, if there is a global solution that comes about, if we're in that day and time when the world is actually asking the question, man, who's going to rise up and lead for us? Your Bible says that there is one who's going to rise up and lead in the last days called the Antichrist. He's going to have solutions to these things. He's going to gather all of the nations of the world together and they will form a single solitary government that will rule. People are talking these things tonight. Verse 5, Isaiah 13, now back to our chapter. For they come from a far country, from the end of heaven. The Lord and his weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land or wail for the day of the Lord is at hand. And it will come as destruction from the Almighty. This is why I know Isaiah is looking forward into the future, a future that is still future. As we read these words tonight, this has not yet happened. The nations of the earth have not gathered together against God, and God has not poured out his wrath on this earth. As bad as coronavirus is, it will get much worse. The express purpose of this time, look at it, is a day of God's vengeance. It's the day of his wrath. He's saying, look, this is going to come when I say it's going to come. We know this time is the great tribulation. We, we look at this time and say, Lord, uh, please don't allow that to happen to anyone that, that can be saved. That's why the church needs to be busy. I, I am asking myself the question tonight, Lord, are you allowing these things in our world to get the world's attention? Are you going to use this for revival in the land? Is this a time when we, the church, might be lit on fire and sent out into this world for one last great harvest of souls and then you come and get the church? Could that be why we're going through this? You might want to ask yourself that question. We, we have no certainty in what's happening as far as the government's concerned. The estimates of the disastrous consequences range from so outside of our thinking to maybe we're almost done with it and everything in between. But what if they're wrong? What if this is just the beginning, if you will, of the end? Verse 7 goes on, and therefore all hands will be limp. Anybody sitting at home right now kind of feel like you're helpless? There's nothing you can do? It's all being decided for you? How about this one? Every man's heart will melt. And they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They'll be like the pain of a woman in her childbirth. They'll be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Now, I'm praising the Lord right now that I know this hasn't happened yet. But I can tell you how people are feeling because they've called me, they've emailed me, they've sent me texts, they've approached me on social media. They said, man, I'm scared, I'm worried. 
The answer when we are scared and when we are worried is that as the body of Christ, we're not supposed to be scared and worried. We're supposed to fear not, says the Lord, for he is with us. We're supposed to lean in on the promises. But this is how I know that this passage, as Isaiah wrote it then, as it applies tonight, has not yet come. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay waste the land and to make it desolate. And he will destroy its sinners from it. Now, praise God, this is where you ought to be saying amen for the grace of God. While the grace of God is available, the wrath of God can be put away. But as soon as the grace of God is not available, we need to seriously worry. So I know that this is not going to happen during a period of time when the grace of God is available. Because he doesn't destroy sinners, he saves sinners. All who will call upon the name of the Lord will be what, church? Saved. Amen? God doesn't want to destroy anyone, but there will come a point in time when he's going to say everyone who's going to be saved is saved. And I'm going to deal one last time with the devil and his, his ilk. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened and it's going forth. Now, if you wake up and there's no sun tomorrow, be very afraid. But that's not going to happen. The moon will not cause its light to shine. And of course, we know that the moon is simply a satellite to the earth and it's only reflected light. So if the sun's gone, the moon's gone. Makes sense. But notice what he says. I will punish the world for its evil. Aren't you praising God that he sent Jesus instead to save us? But there's going to come a point in time when God is going to pour out his wrath on this earth and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will halt the arrogance of the proud and I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Now we can see very easily that the Lord has not chosen to bring this time about as of yet. There are still plenty of evil people on the face of the earth doing evil things. He has not punished the world for its iniquity. Instead, he's poured out grace upon grace. His mercy is new every morning. His gospel is still available to save all who will believe. And so church, Isaiah was looking into the future where the sun will be darkened. The moon shall not cause its light to shine, he says. What kind of calamity is that? It's calamity that the world has never seen. Because God himself is going to pour out his wrath on this earth. And why is this important? Because in both Romans 12 and 13 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9, God has promised his children that of the many benefits of knowing Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, very high on the list of those benefits, especially in the world in which we live, is that he has not appointed us to wrath, but unto salvation. That God has actually promised to save us from his wrath. Oh, we deserve it. You know, sometimes I'll get in a conversation with somebody who's a mid-tribulation person. You know, we call them mid-tribbers or post-tribbers, those that think we have to go through the whole tribulation. And then God will take, or those that are all millennials that believe that we're just simply going to go right into the kingdom age. And we'll have these discussions. 
but I look back on passages like Isaiah 13, and then I look at Romans 12 and Romans 13, 1 Thessalonians 5, and notice verse 11, and I will punish the world for their evil, the wicked for their iniquity. In other words, he's gonna pour out his wrath. And so if your Bible says that for believers, we're not going to face the wrath of God, then this can't be talking about the church being present. The church has got to be gone. This is where the rapture of the church comes into place. This is where we shout hallelujah for the promise that he's not appointed us unto wrath, but unto salvation. Why? Because I haven't rejected Christ. I have believed on the only begotten Son of God. I I turned in faith to, to rest and trust in his grace. And so as Isaiah sees this time, he's seeing a time when God is going to pour out his wrath. That's why Jesus, again, in the Olivet Discourse in Luke chapter 21 said, Um, Pray always that you be counted worthy to escape these things and to be standing before the Son of Man. The reason that I am counted worthy is not because I'm worthy, but my Savior is worthy, amen? My Savior is worthy, and he has saved, and he does save to the uttermost. And so for those of you that are concerned, don't be. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, then these things are not a terror to you. This is God saying, look, I'm not going to allow this to continue forever. Now notice verse 12 with me. I will make mortal man more rare than fine gold and man more than a golden wedge of Ophir. In other words, there's going to come a point in time when mankind itself is going to become scarce. And again, these things all apply to chapter 6 to chapter 19 of the book of Revelation. When God is saying, look, you you can't keep going the direction you're going forever. And while I'm not a conspiracy theorist, and while I'm not saying that every single thing that, that God allows in this world is necessarily his hand of judgment or that we're getting that much closer. I have to look though at the things that I do know and say, Lord, are you trying to get the world's attention through a virus? Are you trying to remind us of something? Are you trying to shake our tree a little bit? And I do believe that that is the case. I believe that God is trying to speak to the church. Look, would you please get busy about my business? Stop concerning yourself with things that don't matter. Quit looking to the world for solutions and look to me. And so tonight, church, as as we read these words, you can either be scared or you can rest and trust in the fact that he who has saved us has saved us to the uttermost. That that we're going to one day wake up in glory. Because the church is going to be raptured home. You see, I have an escape plan. Now, you may be saying, well, you're just an escapist, Jeff. Yes, I am. I absolutely am an escapist. Because I believe my Bible has told me that I am going to escape this madness that's going to come upon the earth. Verse 13, and therefore I will shake the heavens and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts. Again, please look at that word. 
It always and forever describes when God is going to pour out his anger on sinful mankind. I have been washed and made clean by the blood of the lamb. And in fact, the very righteousness of Christ has been placed into my account. It's part of my justification. Part of what we believe transactionally happens to us as believers when we believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is I am now viewed in the righteousness of Christ. I am not even seen as a sinner any longer, though I am a sinner. My sins have been washed and made white as wool. The results of my sin have been forever forgiven by the blood of the lamb. And so when God sees me, there is no reason for him to pour out his wrath on me as a believer because I am seen in Christ Jesus. This would be the equivalent of him punishing his own son again, which he did on my behalf and we will celebrate during Easter week. Jesus already bore my sins on the cross. He already paid the price for that wrath that should be poured out upon me on the cross. He already did everything necessary to free me from the weight of my sin and its future punishment, which is rightly due. He did that at the cross. And so he will not pour out his wrath on his church. It's unthinkable. It's ludicrous in that sense. Again, do I deserve it? Absolutely. But if you believe that salvation comes by grace and through faith, then you must also understand that you have been saved from the wrath of God. It's what you've been saved from. If you want an answer to that, what have you been saved from, man? I've been saved from the wrath of God. Why? Because the Bible says the wrath of God comes upon unbelievers. I'm a believer. And I'm not talking about the monkey song. I am a believer in Christ Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And because of that, I am no longer subject to the wrath of God. Will he chasten his children? Sure. He does that because he loves us. But this is talking about something entirely different. When God's fierce anger is poured out on this world, More than one time does the Lord speak of these things. Isaiah 24, he says the same thing. One of the beauties of what we look forward to is the the children of God, is a restoration of this earth, this world, putting it back to the way it was before Adam and Eve got a hold of it. And probably like some of you, I've always kind of thought, it's like, well, that wasn't very fair. Adam and Eve messed the world up. I I wasn't in the garden. The problem is if I'd have been in the garden, I would have eaten the apple as well. If I'd have been there with Cain and Abel, I probably would have taken some action myself. But the Lord is going to finally punish the unbelieving world that will not turn to him by grace. And as unfortunate as that is, I don't plan on being here when that happens. I don't plan on suffering through the wrath of God. I'm not, so when people come to me and they say, well, you're not doing anything to prepare the church for the tribulation, that's because the church isn't going through the tribulation. 
I do not believe the church will be here. I have never believed that the church will be here for the tribulation. Because what is described in the Bible as the tribulation is the wrath of God, the very thing that he saved us from. So I don't get it. Call me an escapist if you want. I don't care. I believe the rapture of the church is God's way of making good on the promise that he made to us there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9. He hasn't appointed me to wrath. That's the state that unbelievers will have as their end. And so after he wraps this up in verse 14, he turns the page and he turns it back towards history. Back towards the time that Daniel lived through. And it says, and it shall be hunted mankind as a gazelle, as sheep and that no man takes up. And every man will turn to his own people and everyone feed in his own land. This is a far less severe situation. Everyone who's found will be thrust through and everyone who's captured will fall by the sword. Their children will be dashed to pieces before their eyes, their houses plundered, their wives ravaged. And this was the normal way that the Babylonians and the Assyrians conducted their battles. But he returns now to the present time. And this time was spoken about by the psalmist in Psalm 137. And it says there, when they were in Babylon, they hung their harps on the willow tree and cried and said unto us, sing one of your songs of Zion. How can we sing when we're in captivity? The children of Israel would suffer greatly in Babylon, but they would survive. And it would definitely not be the wrath of the Lord that was poured out against them. It would be the wrath of the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, it would be followed, following him would be Sennacherib, the Assyrian, and following him would be the Medes, the Persians, Cyrus. They would go through all kinds of things, but none of them ever accomplished what is described here uh, in, in the first 16 verses of this chapter. Babylon itself would actually be destroyed by the Medes. Verse 17, he goes on, for I will stir up the Medes against them who will not regard silver. And as for gold, they won't delight in it. Also their bows will, will dash the young men to pieces and they'll have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eye will not spare the children and Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldean pride will be as when it got over through Sodom and Gomorrah. Now here's an interesting thing. Isaiah is actually predicting that the Medes would be destroying the Babylonian kingdom. And at this point, the Assyrian kingdom was the predominant empire. So he's actually looking forward toward, to when Babylon would rule, even though they weren't ruling yet. And so he is giving us history in advance. He's telling us of the kingdoms of the world before they ever existed. At this point in time, the Medes were an insignificant group of tribes that were gathered together in what we call modern-day Iran or what was known up until 1979 as Persia. And the Persians would be the destroyers of the great Babylonian kingdom, but at this point in time, that was not who they were. They would come later. And in fact, these two groups of people that are mentioned here to this day still hate one another. It's the reason for the Iran-Iraq war. It's a reason for the difference between the, the Shiites 
and the Shia, the Sunnis. Only God could have known that. Why? Because he's the author of history. History is his story. He does know the beginning from the end. He firmly has these things in control. And the beauty of this is we still live in the age of grace. There's still time. There's still time for people to repent and be saved. There's still time for the gospel to do its work. And so history is what we would call his or God's story. Verse 20, Babylon will never be again inhabited. Go to Babylon today and see what you find. It's not very impressive. Nor will it be settled from generation to generation, nor the Arabian pitches tent there. And if you travel to the actual site of Babylon, to the ziggurat of Ur, if you go to the famed Babylonian garden, you're not going to want to spend all day there. It's a giant dirt mound. Nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there, but wild beasts of the desert will lie down. Their houses will be full of owls and ostriches will dwell there. Wild goats will caper there. The hyenas will howl in their citadels and the jackals in their pleasant places till her time is near to come. Her days will not be prolonged. The story here is that God indeed does have everything under control. He actually is in charge of history and he is going to make good on what he said. The city of Babylon was completely destroyed in 869 by Sennacherib of the Assyrian army. Totally obliterated. It'd be rebuilt by his son. And in 539, Darius the Mede would capture the this, this city. We saw this in Daniel chapter 5. And in the centuries that have followed, the millennia that have followed, it's had its shining moments. It had another little bit of a, a glimmer of hope under Alexander the Great. But it declined, and it is to this day still, as this, this passage of Scripture says, no more. Yes, part of Babylon was a city that Saddam Hussein uh, vainly tried to reproduce as part of a resurrection of King Nebuchadnezzar. But to this day, it's, it's nothing. And so as the prophets often did, they began by speaking of the things that they could see and the things that they knew. But Isaiah went well beyond that as he saw towards the day of the Lord, a time that is still yet future for us tonight. The image used here is a woman in travail, time of judgment. It's the same thing that Jesus spoke about. Same thing that Micah spoke about. Same thing Jeremiah spoke about. And so Isaiah was looking forward to that very last days when this Babylonian world system of a religious system and a commercial system linked together that would offer global solutions to global problems would finally come on the scene and God would say enough. In other words, 
God's not going to allow for a global government to exist for very long. And while we do want to gather together to fight this pandemic, the fact of the matter is there's only one true king and his name is Jesus. And if you call upon his name, you'll be saved. He's the answer to these things. He's the answer to the the fear of the uncertainty that people face tonight. And so I pray that as you have turned your life over to Christ, that you'll rest and trust in his grace and then get busy about his business. Tell people about the good news of the gospel that to believe on his name is to be saved. Because commercial Babylon could be on the rise right now. Religious Babylon might be around the corner. I don't know. All I know is we're closer than we've ever been to those things being a reality. That people are actually talking about solutions to such things for the first time in human history, right now. And so if you want to not worry about these things, then turn your life to Christ. Receive him as your Savior and Lord. Believe on his name and be saved and then get busy. Because God's plan is that one day he is going to deal with sin one final time. And so you can either have your sin dealt with by the cross of Christ through grace and faith, or you can wait to see if you can battle it out with the Lord himself in the very last days. To me, that's not much of a choice. I'm resting and trusting in Jesus. Amen. Father, we thank you for the power of your word. And we pray that you'd encourage those who need encouraging, that you would strike a measure of righteous fear into those that maybe you're playing games with you. And Lord, for we who know you, uh, we're gonna get through this time. We believe there is still yet a future for mankind on this earth and that you want people to come to know you, Jesus. And so we pray that your church would be alive and busy as we have this time to prepare for what lies ahead. And God, would you cause us to be absolutely attentive to your voice, cause us to be encouraging people to come to know you, Jesus, sharing the gospel wherever we go. People are listening right now, Lord. Would we seize this moment? Would we carpe diem, seize this day for your glory and for your purposes? Bless your people. Keep us, Lord, until we can meet again. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.